copy of it to the Gospel according to Luke, the 19th chapter, and I'll be reading verses 41 through 43. Again, as I told the children, this comes at the end of a very long journey that started back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we're told our Lord resolutely set His face toward Jerusalem, and Luke devotes the next 10 chapters in this great journey to Jerusalem, in which He teaches His disciples many things about the Kingdom of God, and about their discipleship, and about how those two things fit together. But here, Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's been welcomed uh, quite enthusiastically by the crowd, uh, but not so much by the Pharisees. And as Jesus comes in and He gazes over the crowd, and grazes over the sight of this wonderful city He loves, Jerusalem, we see his response, and it is quite an emotional one. So, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. This is where Luke writes, And when he drew near, meaning Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. You know that moment in a movie or a TV show when it seems that everything is going well, everything is sunshine and roses for the main character, and the plot seems to be building toward a great climax, and the music swells to this dramatic crescendo, and you think things are about to culminate in a happy ending, and then all of a sudden, there's a snag, and the needle drags across the record, and it stops. Something bad has interfered with the party. Well, that could apply to this section of Luke's Gospel. Jesus finally enters Jerusalem after that long journey. Again, Luke spends ten chapters telling us about everything that happened along this journey as Jesus journeys to what is called the City of Peace. And now he arrives, and what an entrance it is. There's loud cheers and there's applause. It's a little bit like the crowd at Truist Park last week. I had the privilege of going to a Braves game with a church group from uh, First Press with my son. And that, that roar of the crowd when the Braves take the field, everybody's enthusiastic. There's a sense of optimism. It's like, go get them. And that's the way it was that day in Jerusalem. But it didn't last for long, did it? That enthusiasm quickly died out when it became obvious that Jesus is kingdom would look very different from what people imagine. But the crowd is so exuberant in these moments that the stick in the mud Pharisees take Jesus aside and they say, look, you've got to shut these people up. They don't know what they're talking about. They're all wrong about you. You've got to settle them down. And Jesus says what? He says if they're silent, even the rocks will cry out. Jesus is pointing out that even inanimate matter, even the rocks of the ground, understand who He is and the proper response better than these Pharisees. 
And only Jesus knows how true those, those words will appear and become in the time to come. But for now, this transition from the passage before, the triumphal entry, to this passage is a jarring transition. It's an unexpected transition. It feels like emotional whiplash. There was this big exuberant party, and now not so much. In fact, Jesus is quite sad as he looks over Jerusalem. And it's Luke's way of drawing our attention to how wrong the response of Jerusalem is. How tragic. How they have completely missed the boat. And how sad that is. And it's a warning to us as 21st century Christians. But in Jesus' response, we, three, we see three aspects of his character. And those will be my three points this morning. First, we see a compassionate Christ. Second, we see a lamenting Lord. And thirdly, we see a powerful prophet. So first of all, a compassionate Christ. Again, when Jesus draws near to the city he loves, the city where he once sat as a child in the temple listening to the rabbis, he draws near, he sees Jerusalem, and he weeps. I wonder if you remember a commercial from about 40 years ago. Obviously, the young people here will not remember that, but some of you will. And in this commercial, which was something of a public service announcement, there was a tall, dignified Native American man who was gazing out over this trashed up landscape where litter was everywhere. And he's looking out over it. What's he doing? He's crying. There's a solitary tear coming down his cheek that the camera focuses on. He's still stoic. He's not showing much emotion. But you zoom in with the camera and you see that he is, in fact, weeping. Well, Jesus is not gently weeping the way that that man was. What we see here is Jesus bursting into tears. This is kind of a paroxysm of grief that he's pouring out. If you're an eyewitness, you would not only have seen his tears, but you would have heard the loud sobbing. You would have seen his chest heaving in emotion. There's nothing subtle or quiet about this. Jesus is not some stone-faced stoic. Jesus is quite human, and the Gospels never let us forget how completely human Jesus is and all His human emotions. Yes, He is also fully God of fully God. 100% God and 100% man. But Luke goes out of his way to show us at times how truly human He is in His emotions. We remember Him weeping at the grave of Lazarus when He sees what a wreck sin has made of the world. The writer of Hebrews again tells us that he weeps with loud cries and tears in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here, Jesus weeps when he sees this city that he loves that should have recognized its Messiah, its Christ. It should have recognized its King, but it doesn't. But Jesus is not wallowing around in self-pity here. These tears are not about himself. Rather, he knows the catastrophe that their rejection is going to bring upon the city, and that's what breaks his heart. He's weeping for them. As he tells the women later, as he journeys down the Via Dolorosa, and the women come up to him compassionately weeping for him, Jesus says what? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And so Jesus' heart is broken over sinners refusing to come to him for salvation. 
Jesus is a man of sorrows, we're told. Acquainted with all kinds of grief. He shows us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But God wants people to come to repentance and come to faith and trust in Him. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher of the 1700s, wanted to preach in a certain way. And so he would prayerfully ask the Lord to give him the ability to preach in a certain way. And one of the things that he would preach for is that he would deliver God's Word in a way that was broken and tender-hearted. And it wasn't that Edwards wanted to manipulate people by tugging at their heartstrings. It was that Edwards wanted to emulate Jesus. Jesus, whose enemies even said about him, no one ever spoke the way this man did. What was it that made Jesus' preaching so remarkable, so magnetic? Well, for one thing, he spoke with an authority that was all his own. He didn't borrow his authority from any other rabbis. Secondly, he knew his Old Testament, obviously, because he wrote it. But also, Jesus was compassionate and tender-hearted towards sinners. And I'm convinced that came across in his preaching. He preached against sin very often, not because he hated sinners, but because he loved them. We've confused in our culture, haven't we? Disagreeing with sinful choices, with hating the sinners for doing those. Actually, the most loving thing we can do for people trapped in sin is to lovingly plead with them for repentance, to experience the Lord's grace. And that's what Jesus did. So He was made like us in every way so that He might what? So that He might become a compassionate and faithful high priest that we don't hesitate to run to when we have troubles. So whoever said grown men don't cry, here's empirical evidence that they are wrong. Jesus was the perfect man, and He did not hide His tears, at least on those three occasions, and nor should we. Now, we should steer clear of emotionalism, and we shouldn't just babble on in excess all the time, but nor should we hold back from legitimate expressions of grief at the proper times. Does what breaks Jesus' heart also break our heart? I guess that's the question. Take your tears to Jesus because He understands. Whatever caused those tears to roll down your cheeks, He knows. He experienced. And so Luke uses the strongest word available to him to describe Jesus' tears. He wept loudly. His body was racked with sobs. He cried out out of the anguish of his soul. So this side of the city that has rejected him is a dagger in his heart. Again, not for his sake, but for theirs. He knows what catastrophe their rejection of him is going to bring on them. What is it exactly that kindles this emotional outpour of the Lord Jesus? Well, secondly, he's also a lamenting Lord. We see that here. Not only is he... A compassionate Christ. He's a lamenting Lord. Sometimes we find it hard to name our grief. We may cry sometimes if somebody asks us, why are you crying? And we honestly reply, I don't know. But Jesus puts a name on His grief. He very clearly talks about what it is that brings forth His tears. This is a lament for Jerusalem. 
a way of prophetically speaking about this destruction and judgment coming upon a place. He's lamenting over a terrible missed opportunity. Jesus seems to be choking on his emotion as he speaks here. As he utters these broken, almost staccato phrases that come out. And isn't that the way we speak when we're upset? Often it's in these phrases that are broken. And Jesus sort of leaves these phrases out there lingering. If you, even you, he says, had known the things that bring you peace. And there's an if clause, but there's not really a then clause. Jesus lets that just sort of linger out there. As if to say, you, Jerusalem, of all places, should have known better. You had every opportunity. You had the best Old Testament teaching. You had the best rabbis. You had the richest history. You had the temple. You had all those things that point to me. You had the light, Jerusalem, but you rejected it. And what we see here is that Jesus is coming to that which was His own, as the Apostle John says, but His own does not receive Him. And it's tragic. Now, when a king enters a city in the ancient world, a city that he has conquered, what he does is he comes in and he presents to that city the things that will make for their peace. They can either accept that and submit to him, or they can reject his terms of peace and they can bring catastrophe on themselves. So when Jesus speaks of peace here, what exactly does he mean? Well, it's not the subjective, peaceful, easy feeling that the Eagles sang about years ago. And it's more than just a military ceasefire. It's more than just the absence of hostility. The Hebrew, the Hebrew concept of shalom is what is behind Jesus' words here. Not only the absence of hostility, but also the presence of security, the presence of health and wholeness and complete human flourishing and everything that makes for peace and joy and happiness for the human heart. And it's absolutely dependent on a right relationship with holy God. So this is not the subjective feeling of peace. This is the objective peace of salvation that Jesus is talking about. And it's a salvation that must be initiated by God. Which we desperately need by nature, don't we? Because we are by nature not children of God, but children of wrath. We're not at peace with the God of the universe, the one who made us. We are naturally at enmity with Him. We are His enemies. We were created for fellowship with God. But our covenant head, Adam, sinned and he fell. And when he did, we all sinned in Him and with Him. And since then, man is most to be pitied above all creatures because he is conscious of the degree in which he has rebelled against his Creator. And he's not only conscious that he has rebelled, he's conscious of the sense of alienation from God that that has brought upon his life. He knows it's his fault, and he knows that there is nothing that he can do to remedy his situation. The New Testament paints a rather bleak picture of our condition without God, but it doesn't leave us there, thankfully. God in His great love has not left us to ourselves. 
The wages of sin is death. That's the justice of God. But the free gift of God, you see, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the grace of God and the mercy of God. And Jesus comes not to be served in this world, but to serve and to do what? To give His life a ransom for many. So Jesus comes to rescue us, to ransom us out of captivity to ourselves and to Satan and to sin. So that since we have been justified by faith, the Apostle Paul says we now have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that Jesus is talking about here. The peace of salvation. The peace that must be given by God, but it also must be received by sinful people who know that they are desperate for it. So reject those terms of peace and you stay in your sins. And you bring upon yourself the calamity that comes as a result. Accept that gift of God. Embrace Him. Embrace Christ. And you receive the wonderful salvation. The peace with God that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. But rejection is a final and a terrible thing to consider. It's not pleasant for us to talk about. It's not pleasant for us to hear or think about. And when we speak of hell as Christians, it should not be with a sense of glee that anyone is going there or a sense of superiority or smugness as Christians. When we speak of hell and those who are on their way there, we should do it with tears in our eyes as our Lord Jesus does. We should do it racked with sobbing as our Lord Jesus does here. It should put fresh urgency into our evangelism. When we think of people who don't have the Lord, it should break our hearts. It should make us open our checkbooks to give to missions and so forth. So it provokes this tearful oracle of judgment from the lips of Jesus. Since they have missed the opportunity to embrace Him as their Christ, their Messiah, He says, now you are past the point of no return which is truly terrifying. Now he's saying, Jerusalem, you couldn't see it if you had to because you're blind. You're willfully blind. You brought that blindness upon yourself. Why is it that we are sometimes blind to the most obvious truths? Is it not that we sometimes don't wish certain things to be true that are true? And if we deny those truths long enough, what happens? Our hearts get ossified. And we lose the ability to know right from wrong. Truth from error. Sure, Jerusalem can turn even now. Jesus is not preventing them from turning. And later on, a few months later, the apostles in Jerusalem at Pentecost will plead with the people, repent, turn back to the Lord. Even now, He'll return to you and He'll pour out blessings of mercy. It's just that Jesus knows that they won't turn. That they refuse to repent. That they refuse to admit to themselves who He is. That He is sent by God. Don't spurn God's opportunities, friends. We aren't guaranteed that those windows of opportunities will always be open. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him when He's near. Back in high school, a buddy of mine and I were chatting in the hallway one day about sports and so forth, and 
somehow our conversation turned to spiritual matters. And we started talking about following Christ. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I know it's true, but I'm just not ready to be a Christian yet. I want to have my fun. I want to live my life first. And then when I'm old and I've, I've done the things that I want to do, then I'll get serious about following the Lord. And those words have haunted me over the years. We're now middle-aged. I am. He is. I don't know, to be honest, whether he has turned to the Lord for salvation or not. I pray that he has. I pray that he has not missed the Lord's window of opportunity. It is not guaranteed that it will always be open to us. We're not guaranteed the 11th hour deathbed opportunity to repent. The Lord isn't obligated to keep that window open. And so spurn His invitation too many times and He may just withdraw it. It's a tragic thing as His words ring out over Jerusalem. Jesus laments that His own people have missed the boat. And another one is not going to leave the harbor. John Calvin said it this way, the nearer God approaches to us, and holds out the light of sound doctrine to us, the less excusable we are if we miss the opportunity or if we neglect the opportunity. And it prompts Jesus to prophesy about what comes next. So, Jesus is a compassionate Christ. Secondly, Luke shows us that He's a lamenting Lord. And finally, thirdly, He's a powerful prophet. We often speak of the threefold offices of Christ. He is a prophet, and he is a priest, he's a king. He perfectly fulfills those three Old Testament offices in a way that's unprecedented. We saw in our last passage that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe, who rides in and proclaims God's universal kingdom in the world. And in the next passage, we'll see him more of a priestly role as he enters into the temple and as he gives the temple a good cleansing. But in this passage, we see him more as a prophet. In fact, he is the prophet to end all prophets. The prophet to whom all the prophets of the Old Testament merely pointed as road signs. Jesus is the actual destination to which they pointed. And this prophet to end all prophets predicts to the letter what is going to happen to Jerusalem within 40 years from the time he utters it. And his prophecy is so unbelievably accurate that some, a certain kind of Bible interpreter has said there's no way that Jesus said these words at that moment. This had to be added in later. That's how accurate Jesus' prediction here is. Titus, the Roman general, will lay siege to Jerusalem in A.D. 66. And there will be this long, protracted, bloody struggle in Jerusalem as the Romans hem the Jews in, exactly as Jesus predicts here, with the kind of siege works that he talks about. And the Jews, in turn, will not take this lying down. They'll battle back. They'll burn those siege works. The Romans will respond by building walls in their place as if to say, Try to burn those down, will you? And thousands starve as they can neither get in or out of Jerusalem. And it's a terrible, tragic thing. And finally, in a brief five-month final offensive, 
Titus completely decimates the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Millions are killed and no one is spared. And it's awful. Only a few towers are left standing. Mostly the city of peace is leveled to the ground. These magnificent buildings, the magnificent temple shattered into little pieces of rubble that you can pick up in your hand. Just as if fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that the stones themselves will cry out and warn people of the judgment of rejecting its Messiah and its King, even if the people are silent. It's a very personal way, the way the Lord Jesus indicts Jerusalem here. This is not your run-of-the-mill indictment, prophetic pronouncement over a city. Jesus uses the word you, or some variation of it, 12 times in these short verses. And so he's, he's painfully pointing out in a personal way and calling his people to account. Now obviously this is not total apostasy, is it? Because the 12 apostles are all Jewish. When Jesus, is, when Jesus leaves and ascends into heaven, he'll leave behind him 120 followers. All of them apparently are Jewish. The first converts on Pentecost, all Jewish. But this is just a remnant that God is preserving for himself. The leaders, the chief priests, the the temple servants, the people as a whole, the sacrificial system, it is all destroyed. And the people at this point pull out all the stops to go after Jesus. They throw rational thought out the window and they, they try murderously to go after him and to snuff him out. But this will not be even a final apostasy either because the Apostle Paul tells us in, I believe, Romans 11 that there will be another opportunity at some point for God's people, the Old Testament Israelites, the present-day Jews, to come back and be engrafted into the true vine. But before the end, God will give them another chance. And Jesus reiterates the reason for this terrible prophecy, for this lament. He says it's because you did not know the time of your visitation. We hear that, and the sound of that might not sit well with us. Because how could they be punished for something that they did not know? Well, I remember the first time I was pulled over by a highway patrol woman on a road between here and Valdosta, Georgia. It was a lonely road. And I was a young adult, and I had a heavy foot and a thick skull. And she pulled me over, and I rolled the window down, and she said, Sir, do you know how fast you were going? I said, No, ma'am. She said, You're going about 72. I said, Oh, really? And she said, yes, sir. Do you know what the speed limit is around here? I said, no, ma'am. She said, it's 55. I said, oh, really? I did not know that. And she said, well, you should have, because it was posted about a mile and a half down the road from where you came. And I said, but, but I didn't see it. And she said, well, you should have. I would encourage you to pay more attention from now on. Please slow down. Here's your ticket. Here's your fine. Have a nice day. Well, Israel did not know the time of God's visitation to her, but she should have. These are two types of ignorance. There's one that we can't know because nobody ever told us. 
But there's another kind of ignorance that we should know about, but we don't because we simply have not been paying attention. And that's the type of ignorance that Jesus indicts his people for here. Jesus implicates Jerusalem for that culpable ignorance, for that inexcusable, for that intentional ignorance. It's all there in the Old Testament. And it is quite easy for us to see as 21st century Christians to look back and to see how clear these things are because the Lord has made it clear to us. But Jesus will later preach to the Emmaus travelers from all the prophets and the law the things that testify about Himself and their hearts will burn within them. Why didn't they see Him for themselves? Well, because Jesus tells us their hearts were slow to believe all that the prophets had said. So Jeremiah's righteous branch, Isaiah's suffering servant, Job's redeemer who will live and stand upon the earth, the second prophet like Moses, only greater, all of that is in the Old Testament and is a road sign pointing to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament people like us tended to read their Bibles selectively. They tended to not hear or to disregard the things that they didn't like. But those road signs are clearly posted and they chose to be ignorant of them. And Jesus said they'll pay a horrendous price for it. Ignorance of the revealed will of God will not get us off the hook. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of how we have used our opportunities, how we have used our words. Yes, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Christ, we are, we, there is no condemnation for those who know him. And yet, we will all give an account of our lives. And to simply say, I don't know, will not suffice on the day of judgment. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to whom? To us and to our children. And so we should read and mark and learn and digest the Word of God. We should read the Word of God and let the Word of God read us. Yes, even the parts that we don't like. And we should let the Lord speak to us and change us. It doesn't feel good to be convicted by God's Word, does it? But oh, what a wonderful thing it is to be convicted and then to, be, to have that wonderful sense of assurance and forgiveness and restoration to experience the Lord's grace in those areas. Well, our Lord Jesus will visit His people again. And it may be soon. I don't know, and you don't know, and no one knows when the Lord will return. But for some, that will be a rapture of joy. It will be the best thing that ever happened. But for others, it will be a time of terrible doom and destruction. Which person you will be and I will be hinges on this. What do we do with Jesus Christ? If you're here and you've never received Jesus... I would urge you, I would plead with you, run to Him this day for forgiveness. Embrace Him as He's presented to you in the Gospel. Lay all your sins upon Him. Receive from Him His perfect gift of righteousness. John Calvin says, this passage may very well disturb us. And he says, it actually should disturb us. 
What do we do with that? Well, we take it and we run to Jesus. That there's a, a sin that you're struggling with, that you're finding it hard to put down. Run to Jesus, not away from Him. He and He alone can fix what it is that's wrong with us. If you've had loved ones who have not received Jesus, this passage is a great reminder to pray fervently for them and to not give up and to know that the heart of the Lord is tender towards sinners. He takes no pleasure in the death of the unrighteous. He wants them to come to faith and to repentance. Pray and expect Him to do that. And pray and perhaps expect Him to give you opportunities to not only pray for them, but to speak to them at the proper time with the proper words. So the tears of Jesus remind us that He is tender towards sinners. He was tender toward us when we first came to faith. And praise be to God that He has given us an opportunity to come to Him and to put our trust in Him. He's enabled us from the heart to respond. Otherwise, our fate would be the same as Jerusalem. So as to many as received the Lord Jesus, to those He gave power to become the children of God. Let's live our lives in a, a humble spirit of gratitude and thankfulness to Him that He has given that opportunity, that He's welcomed us into His presence. Let's pray to God. Our Lord and our God, how long-suffering You are, how patient. We sometimes look at history, we wonder what You are doing behind the scenes in history. We wonder why the Lord Jesus has not come back yet. As Peter instructs us, Lord, help us to remember that the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but He is giving all those people that He has mercy on an opportunity to repent. And we are grateful for that, Lord. We are thankful for the opportunities You've given us. And we're thankful that if we have responded, that it has been You who has been working in our hearts to cause us to respond. We are so grateful for your love and for your forgiving grace. We do not deserve it. Pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would save our loved ones for whom we are burdened. We pray that you draw them to yourself. Pray that you'd have mercy on them. We're thankful for Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Let's affirm our faith now in this gracious God who gives us salvation. Let's do so using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I invite you to stand with me, please. Child of God, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence you shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does the ninth commandment 
require. The Ninth Commandment requires us to tell the truth and to maintain and promote it and our own and others' reputations, especially when testifying. Let's pray together as we prepare to present our offerings and tithes to the Lord. Father, we thank You for Christ, that He who was eternally rich for our sakes became poor, so that we, through His poverty, might be made rich. Pray that our reception of that grace, our reception of the Lord Jesus, might so fill us with gratitude that we cannot help but give back a portion to You of that which You've given to us. What can I present unto God for His blessings given to me? The cup of blessing we will take and we will call upon the name of the Lord. Father, would You be pleased to use what is given? Would You be pleased to bless them, to multiply them, to use them for the ongoing of Your kingdom in the world and in this community? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Our hymn of commitment is number 457 in our hymnals, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let's praise the Lord together. <laughs> 